Michael Lundy is a physician and psychiatrist who also happens to be a Christian. And he tells a story of when he was a medical student working in a hospital when he was at Tulane University. And while he was there as a psychiatrist, there was this uh, stump medical case. A woman came in with intense chest pains, heart palpitations, shortness of breath, very, very severe into the emergency room. And as this is what happens when you have those kind of uh, uh, symptoms, you are immediately brought in and the concern is a heart problem. And so this woman saw a young physician, resident physician, and his intern was helping out as well. And they asked her questions about her symptoms and they evaluated her and they determined that she immediately needed an angiogram, which is fancy talk for a heart catheterization. They were concerned that she had major blockage in her heart. And so they ordered this uh, angiogram because their concern was that she was on the verge of a heart attack, a massive heart attack. And just in case you were wondering, the fancy word for heart attack is a myocardial infraction. It sounds way worse when you say that, right? And so they, they bring her in and they, they do this uh, heart catheterization, which is entering in through a major artery to try and determine where there are blockages that could cause a heart attack. And to their surprise, they found absolutely nothing. And she calmed down and she is recovering in her room and they are completely stumped. And so the next morning they bring in a, a doctor, a seasoned physician in the hospital who is an expert in uh, the heart. And he comes in and he, he looks at the notes and he sits down and he doesn't ask her about any of her symptoms. He starts asking her questions about her life. As she's sitting up in her bed and the symptoms have subsided, this seasoned physician learns that this woman had three sons. And one of her sons had recently murdered one of the other sons and was facing of course, life in prison, but potentially the death penalty. And to make matters worse, the other living son was so angry at the murderous son that his plan was to murder his brother. And notice what, uh, what Michael Lundy says as he's gathering this information. He sees this doctor gathering this information. He says, the story obtained by a skilled senior physician in a matter of three or four minutes both provided the correct diagnosis and pointed toward the proper treatment, a treatment far more complicated yet far less dangerous than cardiac bypass surgery. You see, we are embodied creatures. This woman, her heart was as healthy as an ox, but her heart was also broken because of what was going on in her life. And these young, albeit well-intentioned physician and his intern didn't ask any of those questions. They only saw what was happening on the outside. They didn't realize there's a different kind of heart problem. And so they couldn't provide the proper treatment because there was an incorrect diagnosis. As we come to Genesis chapter 30 this morning, what we are seeing is people who are misdiagnosing and mistreating a serious heart problem. They're treating an internal problem with external solutions, with quick fixes. 
And what God does in Genesis 30, and what God is, we, we see God doing in Rachel and Leah, and our prayer is what we want God to do with us in our hearts this morning, is he enters in as the seasoned physician. And he is giving the proper diagnosis. See, the, the ultimate problem with this woman was not primarily her physical heart, right? It was that her heart was broken from turmoil. The ultimate problem as we come to Genesis 30, and did you hear it? There are a lot of problems in Genesis 30. This is a mess. But the ultimate problem is not lack of children or a poor marriage. Those those are certainly true things. The ultimate problem is a heart problem. And so this passage is really a sermon. This is a passage about, and this is a sermon about what we would call idolatry identifying idols of the heart. Now, when you hear idol, you might be like me. I think of, you know, a little wooden thing, a little golden thing you bow down to, like Indiana Jones, you know. Or I think of my time in Africa as I was walking through a remote village with the Ocho Day people, with a pastor who longed to translate the Bible in their language, going from house to house and seeing in the corner of every house a shrine with little items that were sacrificed to and bowed down to. And those, are, those certainly are idols, but as we think of our own lives and our own culture, we have to go deeper than that because an idol is not necessarily an inanimate object. An idol is anyone or anything other than God that we look to for significance and satisfaction. That's an idol. And when we... We read, it, read through the Old Testament, we read about idolatry, we see idols described in three primary ways. What people love, what people trust, and what people obey. And so as we look at Genesis 30 this morning, the, the big idea of the passage is, is really quite simple. God alone will satisfy our longing for significance. And every other attempt to gain that significance outside of him will fail. And we see this in three parts as we look at this story of primarily Leah and Rachel, but also Jacob. We see, first we see a longing for significance. Okay, and that could be the, the diagnosis as we're, if we think of that medical illustration. Then second, we see an attempted solution. That's the improper treatment that they seek to apply. And then third and finally, we see a superior satisfaction, which is the proper treatment that God would have for Rachel and Leah and for us as we identify the idols of our own hearts. So first, as we look at this passage, what do we see? A longing for significance. Now, just by way of reminder, we are in the middle of another messy family situation in Genesis. If you remember Pastor Clint's sermon last week, Jacob wants to marry Rachel, this woman he finds beautiful and loves. And so he serves Laban, her father, for seven years so that he can marry Rachel, but Laban pulls a very awkward switcheroo the night of the wedding, and without Jacob knowing, gives Jacob Leah, the older sister. And Jacob does not love Leah, she's despised. He longs for Rachel, so he agrees to serve another seven years, so now we have a polygamous marriage, not between one man and one woman as God designed but between one man and two women who are sisters. And by the way, this is one of those passages in the the Bible. There are prescriptive passages, right, that say, do this, don't do this. Think of the Ten Commandments, for example. 
But then there, a lot of the Bible is descriptive. And just by describing the effects of something shows us whether or not it's good or bad. And this is one of those passages that shows us, here's what happens when you neglect God's design for marriage. It's disaster. There is favoritism, there is hatred between the sisters, there is envy, and there is rejection. And so as we saw last week, Leah was hated, she was neglected, she was despised, but God in his grace and mercy toward the afflicted hears her and opens her womb. And if you remember, at the end of chapter 29, she actually learns to find her significance in God. Look at verse 35 of 29. And he's, she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Ends well. It seems like she's finding her significance in God. But here's what, what happens. This creates conflict with Rachel. And this is where we start in verse 1 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I will die. She longed for children to find significance. Now, Rachel has the love of Jacob, but she's barren. And this is important for us to understand in this, in this culture. This would mean that those around her, at least her perception is that those around her would look upon her, Rachel, as being judged by God because she couldn't bear children. And that is a false way of thinking, by the way. Children are a blessing from the Lord, absolutely. Psalm 127, they're a, a gift, a heritage. Think of the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. So the Bible is very clear. Yes, children are a blessing, but here's what happened. People took that truth and they said children are a blessing. Therefore, if you don't have them, you must be cursed. Yet God never says that. And so that is what Rachel is thinking. Give me children or I die. I don't have significance. I'm looked upon as judged by others unless I have children. And then notice Jacob's response in verse 2. His wife is pouring out her heart to him. She clearly is longing for significance. In verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has is, who is withheld from you the fruit of the womb? This is a perfect example of theology that lacks compassion. Right? He says a true thing about God. Listen, God is in control over giving children. God is sovereign over it. That is a true theological statement. But he is completely lacking in empathy and care for his wife. In fact, he gets frustrated and annoyed. This is a good side lesson for all of us. Right? Theology without compassion is a very ugly thing. But particularly, it's a, a good application for us as husbands. This is not the way to respond to your wife if she comes to you and is deeply, clearly in pain over something. To respond in frustration. In fact, what he does here is the opposite of what Isaac did in Genesis 25. What Isaac did when his wife was barren is he prayed for her. 25.21 says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because 
She, Rebecca, was barren. Jacob does none of that. And by the way, we see mostly Leah and Rachel in this story. But as you'll notice, Jacob is, is a mess here as well. And so Rachel pours out her heart. She shows this longing for significance. And she thinks, if I could just have children, then I'd be satisfied. Enter in the envy of her sister. There's a switch here. Rachel was more beautiful than than Leah, but now Leah has the honor of children. And so she is jealous and angry. If I could just have more success than my sister, then I would find significance. Now what about Leah? We saw her in the end of, of chapter 29, finding her significance in God. But something happens to Leah. Look again at 29 verse 35. She said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing children. And as we come to chapter 30, we see that Leah has again reverted back to seeking significance through children and trying to earn the approval of her husband. And you say, well, how in the world can that happen? Well, doesn't that happen to each of us as well? We have, we have times where this, this mountaintop experience of joy and delight in God, one week, maybe it's a sermon or maybe it's a time in the Word or maybe it's just a season of conviction and then something happens and our hearts grow cold and we start looking for significance in other things once again. This is the ebb and flow of the life of faith. And so when we come to chapter 30, we see that Leah is drawn back into finding her significance in these things. Look down at chapter 30, verse 20. We see a very similar thing. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. She goes back again to to finding her significance in her husband. Now, what what does this mean for us? Because this this is a very strange cultural thing, right? Well, first we have to understand a very clear application here. Having children or not having children does not give one ultimate significance. Now, that might sound simple, but it's important to note. Some cultures, like this one, misunderstood God's blessing of children. Children are a gift from the Lord, but they are not God. Just like every gift and blessing from God, they are meant to point to the Creator. Likewise, Those who are unable to have children are not lacking anything. Let me remind you that the most complete human who has ever lived was both unmarried and did not have any children. Jesus. So that's simple to note here. But we have to dig deeper here. Because though the the idol for us is, is likely not, I want to have as many kids as I can to find significance. That's likely not it for us. Some of you are like, maybe you, Kevin, you have six, right? (laughs) Culturally, that's not a very common idol. But this leads us to ask the question, where are you and I searching for significance? What is the thing that you and I would say, give me this or I'll die? Or to put it another way, answer this question for yourself. I would have significance and satisfaction if I had blank. 
how would you fill in the blank? One of the greatest ways to, to do this, to identify these idols, remember an idol is anyone or anything other than God that you depend on for ultimate significance. One of the greatest ways to do this in your life is to consider your emotional responses to things. Emotions, both positive and negative, are like those indicators on your dashboard. I got in the car this morning and uh, Lauren took the car yesterday and uh, I'm not blaming this on her, but I got in the car and realized, oh, I'm out of gas. I need to go grab some gas. And the reason I realized that, not because I looked down at the gas gauge, is because when I turned in, what happened? The light popped on. You need fuel, right? Our emotions are like that. What makes us angry? What makes us fearful? What do we worry about? Those things are indicator lights of what our heart values the most. And those indicator lights pop on when those values are threatened, are they not? Uh, one of the most helpful um, uh, people I've found on this is Tim Keller. He's written extensively on this. And I've summarized some of his uh, information on identifying idols and put it, put it in a chart. We can put that up right now. This would be an example. Now, by the way, because we can't spend a ton of time on this, there is a sheet at the resource table where you can grab this, and there's more information on there as well, to help you identify the idols of your heart. But, but he sums up most idols into these four categories. Because it's really easy for us to, to point to the external thing, like children are the problem, or money is the problem, or my career is the problem. But there is something underneath all of those things. So for example, maybe you seek, that first column at the top, maybe you seek your significance in power. You have to be successful. You have to win. You need influence. And because of that, your greatest fear is what? Being humiliated. And because you value that thing above all else, that power, people around you often feel used. As if they're just sort of pawns or rungs in the ladder for you to get to more power and more success. And when that power is threatened, how do you tend to respond? It's likely that you respond with anger or frustration. Or maybe the idol is approval. You have to have affirmation and love in relationships. You say, if I don't have that, I'll die. And your greatest fear is rejection. And people around you tend to, because of that, feel smothered because you put on them a burden they were never meant to bear. And your, your emotional response is likely cowering in fear or the, the fear of others because you're so afraid of losing their approval. Or maybe it's comfort. And your greatest nightmare, your greatest fear is stress and demands of life. And people around you tend to feel neglected because they're getting in the way of your me time. And, and you're bored a lot because you have to be tantalized and entertained. Or maybe it's control. You highly value self-discipline and certainty and standards. And your greatest fear is any sense of uncertainty, losing that control. And people around you often feel condemned when they don't fit into your, your standards and your disciplinary uh, control um, benchmarks, right? And so you get worrisome and fearful when those things are threatened. Now as we look at this, do you notice where Rachel and Leah would fall? I'd say primarily in the approval category, but also the idol of power. There is this idol of approval, Leah. I have to have children so I can have the approval of my husband. 
But then there's this, this idol of approval for Rachel as well. I have the love of my husband, but I have to have children, so I'll be honored by those around me and considered blessed. And that then leads to this idol of power. Now I'm at war with my sister, and I have to be better than her. I have to have success and influence, right? You see, this longing for significance that they have is revealing the idols of their hearts. And that leads us to number two. Number one, a longing for significance. Number two, an attempted solution. So keep those categories in mind. Maybe the Holy Spirit was revealing to you some of those idols of your own hearts. And as we move on through this passage, we see this attempt to solve the problem. And what happens is, is essentially, I think of no better way to put this than a baby-making competition. Right? Who can have the most kids, sons in particular, the fastest and in the most awkward way? That's really what's happening here. This is like late 90s afternoon talk show script. Like Maury Povich and Jerry Springer would have fought over having these folks on their show. And so they take a, a page out of the Genesis playbook, the family tree playbook, just like Sarah with Hagar, Rachel first. She says, you know, here's a good idea. Verse 3. Here's my servant, Bilnah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Now again, this is where Jacob is absent in a sense of, of action. But he should have stepped in here and said this is not a good idea. But he doesn't. He doesn't lead well here. And so Rachel through Bilnah has uh, another son, Dan, which sounds like God has judged or vindicated me. As we go through this, it's important to listen to these names because that will come up later in the story. And then she also gives birth to, through Bilna, Naphtali, my wrestling, verse 8. And so there are more sons provided. And then Leah says, well, I can't let that happen. I've got to get in on this as well. Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And so these were maidservants that were given. They were essentially considered wives, though not in the same way as Rachel and Leah were. So now a messy situation gets even messier. And Leah, through Zilpah, has Gad, which sounds like good fortune. Verse 11. And Asher, verse 13, which sounds like happy. And there's something so important to notice here. In chapter 29, verse 31, we're told that God opened the womb of Leah. Later on, we'll see in chapter 30, verse 22, that God is the one who opens the womb of Rachel. But here... Moses, the narrator, is completely silent about God's involvement. And his silence is meant to tell us something. This is not God's way to go about getting what you want. This is a poor attempt to find a solution for satisfaction and significance. And what they're really trying to do is, as they're naming these sons, they're sort of trying to retroactively bless their sinful actions. Oh, look what God has done for me. And just as when you, like, when you think this can't get any worse, this sort of baby-making competition, it does get worse. And there is another attempted solution. We see this jealous and wicked transaction in verses 14 through 19. This is the low point of the story. 
Reuben, the oldest son of Leah, is out in the fields and he finds some mandrakes. Has it, I'm just curious, does anyone, has anyone ever had a mandrake? No. Some of you are like, oh, Harry Potter, that scene with a... Okay, so a mandrake, rough translation, is love fruit. And it was believed, superstitiously, that, and it apparently seems rare here, that this root had fertility properties. So Reuben finds it. He thinks this is valuable. He brings it home. And Rachel, remember, she is barren at this point. She wants some. But Leah gets involved. And, and listen to what she says, starting in verse 15. It says, but she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? You hear the bitterness of Leah? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Then Rachel said, and here's the, here's the transaction, then he, Jacob, may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. You see what's happening here. This wicked, sinful transaction. This reminds us, as we think of Genesis as well, of Jacob and Esau, doesn't it? Here, they're trading mandrakes for a night with Jacob, a piece of food for something. Now, Jacob with Esau was the one tricking his brother into selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. But now, Jacob's the one being traded for an item of food. And in God's providence, this exchange happens. The magic mandrakes do not work. But Leah does have a night with Jacob. And Leah, not Rachel, conceives. And more sons are provided. Issachar, which sounds like wages in verse 18. And Zebulun, which sounds like honor in verse 20. And then we get this important note about a daughter being born. It's likely that this wasn't the only daughter being born. But that she's mentioned here because... Uh, in verse 21, because she's a very important character later in a story in Genesis. Now, as you consider these attempted solutions, right, the, the baby-making contest, the weird mandrakes thing, did they find the significance they were looking for? Did their attempts work? Absolutely not. Yes, they had more children, but it actually leads to a deeper dissatisfaction, and not just internally, but in every which way. And friends, this is what idolatry does. It doesn't just affect us. It affects every relationship, our vertical relationship with God. Notice they have completely neglected God's way in trusting him. And they're, they're carrying out their own sinful tactics and trying to retroactively bless it. They're at odds with God in that way. But not just the vertical relationship suffers. The horizontal relationship suffers. These are sisters. And they hate each other. They despise each other. They're warring with each other. It's, it's a heartbreaking scene, and we get nothing of it. But can you imagine what this household was like for these children? It's devastating on these relationships. Then there's also the internal relationship with self. There is no indication that they're satisfied. They are left feeling empty. And friends, that's, that's what happens when we look to significance in anything other than God. The solution didn't work because the problem was misdiagnosed. And when God is not primary, every relationship suffers. Idolatry always overpromises. All you got to do is do this one thing. Then you'll find satisfaction. And underdelivers. You're left wanting more. The prophet Jeremiah uses a wonder illustration, wonderful illustration of this in Jeremiah 2.13. This is a great verse to memorize and meditate on. 
Listen to what he says. He says, my people, and by the way, Christian, when you hear my people, read Rachel and Leah, Jacob, and you and I as well. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, Jeremiah uses a, a favorite biblical illustration of God as the fountain of living water. And when we look to significance in anything other than him, we are forsaking the fountain and we are building these cisterns. These are underground ceramic containers. But the problem is there's holes in the bottom. And we're trying to fill it up with water and saying, yes, this is going to fill me up. This is going to fill me up. If I have approval from others, it'll fill me up. If I have satisfaction in my career, it's going to fill me up. If I have power and success, it's going to fill me up. If I could just live a comfortable life, it's going to fill me up. And Jeremiah says, no, it won't. Because every cistern is broken. You must come to the fountain for satisfaction. And I think there's another Another warning for us here, especially those of us as Christians who love the Bible. And as a church, we love the Bible, don't we? We love good, sound doctrine because, because God is worthy of think, us thinking rightly of him. But do you notice here that these women actually had pretty good theology? You see it in the way they name their children. They know that God is the one who provides fortune. They know that God is, is the one who cares for them. They know that God is the one who provides happiness. That's why they named their children that way. They had all of the right truths in their mind, but it failed to press down deep into their hearts. And friends, that should be a warning for us. Good doctrine is not enough unless it leads to devotion to Christ as the primary object of our affections. A.W. Tozer, I love this quote. He says, you can be as straight as a gun barrel theologically and as empty as one spiritually. And I think that's what we see at play here. And we must see the folly of our attempts to find satisfaction in anything other than him. Whatever that may be. And that leads us to number three. So we've seen a longing for significance, an attempted solution... And here we see the proper solution, a superior satisfaction. Now here's what's amazing about this. And if you've been with us in Genesis, you know how this goes, right? A, a mess of a family situation, sinful activity, self-centered envy and hatred and rejection of God and his ways. Yet, in the midst of it, God still shows his grace and works. And we see that clearly here, and I think where we most clearly and obviously see it is in the naming and the birth of these sons. Do you remember what God promised to Abraham? That he would build a nation through him, and that through him all nations would be blessed? Well, what are we seeing in this messy chapter? We are seeing a nation being formed. We are seeing the 12 tribes of Israel beginning here. We are seeing God bless Jacob, not because he deserves it, not because someone did the right thing, but because God is a God of grace and mercy, and he works in the mess. And I think there's two primary ways where we see God's grace in this, and in clear ways that point us to Christ. As we consider the names, first, what's so incredible is that they're naming these children, but it's as if God is saying, listen, you're naming these children while looking for satisfaction elsewhere. 
But if you just consider these names, you'd hear that I'm the one. I'm the fountain. With Reuben, it's as if he's saying, I'm the one who sees you. With Simeon, it's as if he's saying, I'm the one who hears you. With Levi, I'm the one who is your hope. Attach yourself to me. With Judah, I'm the one worthy of praise. With Dan, I'm the one who brings vindication. Naphtali, I'm the one who prevails. Gad and Issachar, I'm the one who provides. Asher, I'm the one who brings true happiness. Zebulun, I'm the one who bestows honor, as we'll see in a moment. Joseph, I'm the one who will give increase. It's as if he's saying, listen, stop finding significance and satisfaction in all these other things. I'm the one who you come to. I'm the one who satisfies. Now, this is a bit lost on us because most of us name our children because it sounds cool, right? Or it's, you know, on popular baby names for that year. But naming was such an important thing. And as you follow this strategy all throughout the Bible, all of it is pointing to one name, the name above all names. And when we come to Matthew, we see Matthew 1.21, and you shall call his name Jesus, God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Acts 4.12, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. All of this naming points to the name above all names. Our salvation and our satisfaction. Right? But there's another way this passage also points us to the grace and satisfaction found in Jesus. Look at verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. Stop. We don't know what happened, but it seems somehow that between... Uh, verse 21 and 22, there was a work in Rachel's heart. And instead of trying to jockey in her own ways and using sinful strategies to get what she wants, she cries out to God, and God listens to her and opens up her womb. Verse 23, she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. You may say, well, that's just another son being born. What's the significance of this Joseph character? Well, if you remember at the end of 29, Pastor Clint showed us last week that Judah is the one through whom the line of Christ would come. So if Judah is the line of Christ, Joseph, he is a type of Christ. And this introduces us to what we're about to experience in the rest of the book. Joseph is the character who gets more playing time than anyone in Genesis And he is a, what we would call a type of Christ. Joseph points us to the Savior in whom is all our satisfaction. Maybe you've heard this story before. Joseph grows up. He is rejected by his family. Jesus is rejected by Israel. Joseph is mistreated and he suffers and is thrown into a prison. Jesus is mistreated, though righteous, and does nothing wrong and is killed and placed into a grave. God raises up Joseph to one of the most prominent positions in the world so that his brothers and all who come to him in the midst of a famine have food and life and restoration. And likewise, God raised Christ from the dead that all who come to him and believe will have life everlasting. When we see that name Joseph, we're meant to think of not only his story, but Christ as our true satisfaction. Brothers and sisters, do you see Christ as a superior satisfaction today? 
He says in John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Don't search for satisfaction and significance in the things of this world. The fountain is before you. Believe in Christ and your soul will be satisfied. Yes, you will struggle, right? Your heart, our hearts will be pulled away to other idols, but we will know at the end of the day that Christ alone can give us what we need. I want to close with four helpful things to consider. Tim Keller talks about what happens, what happens when we recognize our idols. He says there's four things that you can do. First, you can blame the things that are disappointing you and try to move on to better ones. He says that's a way of continued idolatry and spiritual addiction. You can blame yourself and beat yourself up. Right? Many of us do that. That's a way of self-loathing and shame. Or you can blame the world around you, and that's how you become hard and cynical. Or, fourth, you can reorient your entire focus of your life to God and the gospel. Right? And that's what he's calling us to do. Friends, God alone will satisfy our longing for significance. Every attempt to find it outside of him will disappoint us and fail. See, if our idol is power and control, we need to see that Christ is the all-powerful, sovereign one. If our idol is, is approval of others, we need to see that in the gospel we are adopted as sons and daughters. The Father is pleased with us. Or if we're, we're seeking comfort, we need to know that at the right hand of the Father is pleasure forevermore. So friends, let's forsake our idols and come and drink of the well that is Christ. Let's pray together.